Welcome back to The V Word. Vagina, vagina, vagina. This is Dr. Erica and Dr. Chen. And today we are going to be talking about what we know and don't know about COVID-19 and pregnancy. And this is a topic... I, well, I don't know if we should just like apologize for it taking so long to put this out there or just what, because I, um, I feel like we have been like, maybe let's just talk a little bit about like what you and I have been going through these past several weeks in terms of this, because it's a scary, scary yeah. time for everyone, including us. Well, I think one reason we didn't want to put this out sooner is because we wanted there to be more solid recommendations and everything has just been in this world of flux where it seems like no one's in charge and nothing is clear. And yet it still sort of feels like that, but we could not wait any longer. No. Yeah. I feel like we were just sort of like, you know what, this is not, we're not going to get like really hard facts and science and data. And meanwhile, in our own clinics, people are asking us, like our patients are asking us all of these really pertinent questions that I know all of you guys have out there, or at least have friends, family members who are asking and wanting to know about. So let's just do it. (laughs) Yeah. So th- with with the caveat that we don't have a lot of data, we don't have a lot of hard data, we don't have a lot of firm recommendations, things are changing all the time and probably will change be- between now when we're recording this and the time we release it. And so a reminder to just check the most recent guidelines and that we'll probably have to do more of these episodes, don't you think, Jen? Yes, I think so. I think we'll just have to do it in pieces as it comes. But this is the early April 2020 COVID-19 in pregnancy and beyond episode. <laughs> there we go. And we're just going to be where we are because that's all we got right now. Okay. But first, okay. before you dive in, I just want to check in with you, though. Like, how are you doing? I realized something interesting about my own um, anxiety levels the past day that I wanted to share with that? you because I think... I don't think you have the same problem, but I realized I am such a rule follower. Like a, I'm like a diehard rule follower. Really? Especially when it comes, yes. And especially I would not when have it comes you to, for that. Yes. When it comes to healthcare things, like if you tell me that we need to, I don't even know, like always wear um, something covering my hair in the operating room. I like freak out if I walk even one step past the line without something on my hair just because it makes me feel so much like dissonance. Um, And I realized part of my anxiety right now is that the rules keep changing and it is so hard for me to feel like I'm following the rules. Like don't order, you know, like order things from online to keep businesses in business and like keep stimulating the the economy, but don't order packages because you're putting workers who are delivering them and packing them at unnecessary risk. Oh my God. Like, You know, like wear, wear a mask, don't wear a mask because you're stealing them from other people that might need them more. Like, I just don't even, uh, that, that is very hard for me. I realize the changing of the rules. That is, that is interesting. I I mean, I do feel like everyone's sort of struggling this, um, with this in different ways and, uh, specifically like healthcare workers, us, and and we're not even like ER doctors or ICU doctors, but I, I mean, I've had patients who had it, you know, um, I think the anxiety is different for healthcare workers and that's a voice that like we're starting to hear a little bit more of, but uh, you know, not to belabor it, but these like unique perspectives, like you're talking about, like, I just don't know how to follow the rules, even at my own job and work. Like Mm -hmm. for me, I feel like, um, um, my, and like show up for your patients, but keep your family safe. That's like one of the hardest things, right? Like keep showing up to work, but also keep your family safe. 
a lot of my anxiety and I'm having a lot of it right now. And maybe even some like mild depressive symptoms too. Like, I mean, like, so get your mental health care, however you need it, people. But it just, it's a hard time. And I feel like a lot of what I'm feeling, yes, snaps, is um, I'm a huge extrovert. And it's really, really hard for me. It's like literally pouring acid on my soul to not have these like daily normal life interactions. And then to go to work um, and have to physically go to work and be there for patients and, you know, put a smile on. And I'm honest with them, but like essentially like perseverate with them and hold space for all of their anxieties um, amidst that all. And then another thing, um, you know, like come home and be there with your family, but then also realize that a lot of the things that you would normally do for your family, um, you know, interact with other people, have play dates, um, but even like less or even like more social distancing things like make sure that I um, can provide them with a clean home and, you know, like employ the use of like a, a health care um uh, a house cleaner like we normally do like people don't want to be near anyone who is in the healthcare field which is a really huge awakening that I'm having so like yeah the the woman who helps me clean my house doesn't want to come to our house right now because she knows that we work in the hospital um friends that would who in child care right like no yeah, one child care who who said that they would be there to help with child care don't want to be there because we work in the healthcare field and that's kind of like I get it but it's heartbreaking and anxiety producing on a whole different level anyway here's my feelings well how are you how are you coping what's your what's your self-care peloton i swear again and again i should be like we should be spokespeople (laughs) peloton i'm trying to peloton and shout out to robin my favorite instructor but she's doing a lot of like um real talk on her rides and she's doing these rides called like together we ride and saying things like, you know, we don't have a lot of control right now, but you have control over your breath and you have control over what your feet are doing right now. And, you know, like just be in this moment and be active and activity as sort of the antidote to to these feelings. Well, and I think also we're seeing this with Peloton for me too, but in this, like we, I really want to embrace this spirit of we're all in this together instead of we're yeah. all in this alone which I think yes. those are also things that people vacillate between a lot. And I think yeah. um, I'm trying to really hold on to that. And I just love all the ways this, that she frames it. Yes. Yeah, Thanks, yeah, yeah. Robin. Yeah. What about you? When, when healthcare, um, when um, mental health thing, and then we'll move on. Yeah, yeah. Let's just talk about mental health this whole time. Ugh, um, yeah, I, I just read this book, <laughs> this book about um, called Come As You Are which I told Uh you about a little bit that is uh, we can post a link to it. It's amazing. But she talks about the stress response and the stress cycle as just Mm -hmm. needing, needing to basically like do something intentional to come down from stress. And so I've been trying to add in some rituals for me to basically like when I, when I get home and from the end of the week, like really release my stress. And uh, I've been trying to work on those, but Peloton is definitely one of them. What's your other ritual? What else? What should I do? Uh, I've been taking, yeah, I've been on the end of my week or after a 24 hour shift, I come home and Peloton and then I take a bath and I just yeah. like have that be time when I just feel like it's just my space. Yeah. feels good. Nice. I like it. Okay. Right. Shall we, shall we go into the anxiety? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I wanted to start right off the bat with the hardest question that I know you and I are getting all the time, um, and for which there is no 
answer to. But what do you say to patients who ask, should I get pregnant or should I wait to get pregnant right now? Yes, I've had a lot of people asking that question. I think it's different for everyone, right? Like if a 42-year-old asks me that, um, it's different than if a 22-year-old asks me that. Or if someone who um, has is just about to start an IVF cycle and everything's lined up and it's ready to go and the stars have aligned, they've dumped thousands of dollars you know, into it versus someone who's trying to do it naturally. It, so a lot goes into it. That's the caveat. But I think for someone who does not have an extenuating circumstance, for someone who's trying to, um, you know, has maybe stopped, took their IUD out a few months ago or just stopped taking their um, birth control and is thinking, well, now is the time we wanted to do it. And there's nothing pressing like it has to happen in the next couple of months. For those people, I am actually telling people, let's wait. Let's wait a couple of months. Let's get more data because the data that we do have on how this affects pregnancy is really, really limited. And when you look at other infectious diseases, um, you know, some affect pregnancy really severely, some really mildly. And until we have that information, really, this is a space of how much, um, how much are you willing to, uh, I guess, feel comfortable with, with, with the unknown, you know, and if you can wait mm-hmm. a few months, how much and clear, you know, clear that up a little bit. And I'm not saying we have like huge data coming out in a few months or huge trials that are going to be done by then, but we'll have more anecdotal information about pregnant people who were already pregnant when this happened. You know, if you can do that, do it. That's what I'm saying to people. Yeah. I sort of described this. I recently talked with um, the co-founder of Loom, um, Erica Chidi, about this, and I described it as, I think of deciding to get pregnant as this like Venn diagram mess of like, your biological clock, your like financial clock, your work, like all these things together. And I think this is like a huge, big unknown circle that goes into that Venn diagram. And I think it like, if you, if that's your only circle that you're thinking about, and I don't know, like, we just, we just don't know. It's like a huge question mark circle. So right, it's very unclear right. how that lines up. Like, would it be better to get pregnant now and before, you know, we're in like year three of this? Maybe. I don't know. But like, we just don't know. So I totally agree with you. It depends on your medical situation and then also how well you hold uncertainty. If you don't hold yeah. uncertainty well, if you're like very risk averse, then I think this is not probably the right time. Yeah. Which is and, uh, I will also just say, hold up, year three. <laughs> I, I mean, I just don't know, right? Before. No one knows. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's move from that um, and let's talk about people who are currently pregnant but not close to delivery. Um, oh, wait, I want to say one other thing. I want to just add that if you are already doing an IVF cycle, because there have been some actual oh. recommendations that came out of like the ASRM, yep, the, ASRM. Um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, they, they actually have sort of put um, a hold on any cycles that were not already in progress. So um, if you had like had a consultation with an REI doctor and you were about to start a cycle, maybe you've seen that put on hold. But if you were already going through the steps, they, you know, they were moving through. So, you know, talk to that specialist if that's someone that you were going to be talking to anyway, because um, there are new regulations. And same thing, you're right, that we should talk about this in terms of people who are thinking about surrogacy or even adoption, like all of those ways of starting families have become a lot more complicated and on hold with travel bans and yeah. Um, yes restrictions and all of those things. So I think 
Um, most of that is on hold, frankly, unless right. you're in the literally in the middle of it where you're injecting medications or having embryos transferred, um, which is really hard. Okay, so you're pregnant. Um, you're somewhere in your first and second trimester. What? Where do you go from here? <laughs> yeah, so I think it's good to start with what we what data we do have, which is incredibly limited, as Jen mm-hmm. said. But we have basically two reports from China where up until now, the most cases came from two reports describing 18 pregnancies, which is like crazy low numbers of any case studies like that we would not accept that for fact in any other situation. But it's just all we have to go on. And these are all people who were uh, pregnant and infected in their third trimester. And Mm -hmm. their clinical findings in terms of how how sick they got, how um, what kinds of symptoms they had were very similar to non-pregnant adults. And so it doesn't seem from this small sample that pregnancy changes how sick you get or how likely you, you are right. to get sick from this from COVID-19. So, so from that, so from just those limited um, collections of, of uh, or cohorts, I should say, what I've been telling people is so far, and again, very, very limited, this does not look like it will affect you any differently from what we know, but we do know that you are immunocompromised when you're pregnant. So maybe you are more likely to get it, but then once you get it, we, we don't know that it affects you differently. Yeah. And again, just such small cases. There were some cases in these 18 pregnancies of people who had experienced like some fetal distress in their labors and had some who had preterm delivery. But it's unclear because this isn't a controlled study and it's such small numbers if any of that had to do with COVID. And the impression of the authors is that it didn't. Um, and then the testing for COVID in all of the babies was negative. Um, but all but two pregnancies were cesarean deliveries. And it's unclear if that matters, all sorts of things like that. And then we're getting different data from New York. So we haven't had a big case series from New York yet, but there have been some reports of women who have come in, not known they were positive for COVID and ended up in the ICU. And the New York Times reported on that. And I think that is just really hard by itself um, in an epidemiologic way to know, like, obviously that's a striking thing, but who knows if that, you know, who, who, maybe that is just the way non-pregnant adults are being infected because we just have larger numbers in New York, but it's just like so hard to know. Did you, did you see that um, case report that was in JAMA? I think it was JAMA. Um, Maybe you're going to mention this already um, as part of your notes, but it was this woman. And I think in China, she had had a C-section. She was in her third trimester um, and she was wearing an N95 mask during the procedure. They took the baby away immediately. She didn't get to hold or, you know, just skin to skin. Um, and she had had, she had been infected, oh, I want to say like a week before or something. And then when we talk about like the testing that's currently available, um, you know, we're just testing, do you have it or not? But some countries, not the U.S., have the ability to test for your antibodies, meaning you can tell mm-hmm. if you don't have it right now, did you have it in the past? And there's two different types of antibodies, IgM, IgG. One tells you, you know, if you have it more recently. And one is like, did you have a past infection? And she had IgM antibodies it showed up on like the third day after getting infected. Um, so several days before the C-section, the baby had IgM antibodies two hours after birth. So they were and like, IGM the only way this could have happened was through yeah. placental spread. But IgM doesn't typically cross the placenta. 
Right. So that's why they're saying this is really weird because how did the baby get it if, you know, I mean, they don't know, right? They just don't know. But the authors are hypothesizing that it was it was a possibility. Yeah. And I think one of the hard things we're finding with testing like um, cord, a lot of the blood draws that come after birth are from the umbilical cord. So figuring out is there any uh, maternal blood or maternal antibodies in that test is really yeah. difficult, which is why, which these are the questions people are asking. But at this point, we just don't know. So let's talk about more of the logistics of how this pandemic is affecting people's prenatal care. So what a lot of people are asking me, and we've sort of already addressed this in our own practices, but how does this change how often people have prenatal care or see their doctors? What's it, yeah. what's it doing so, in your practice? So um, it, it definitely is changing it. Um, and I'll, um, I'll say up front that ACOG, the American College of OBGYNs, released um, what, a committee opinion or a, a written statement saying that it, you know, while prenatal care is still important, this is bound to change it. And so what we've seen a lot of people doing is spacing out the number of prenatal visits. So if you were going in every four weeks, especially in the very beginning of pregnancy, maybe now you're going in every six weeks to try to decrease your risk. And also a lot of what we're doing is um, converting to telehealth or video visits. So if you don't need to be in the office, you know, if you're, if you can communicate um, some of those more common questions, like is your baby moving well, any bleeding, leakage of fluid, contractions, you know, doing that all by video. Doing that, of course, is going to cut out on, you know, some of the stuff that we do do, like listening for heart tones. But in this sort of unprecedented time, we're trying to find proxies for um, keeping both the pregnancy safe and in the woman safe. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that, like many things in our society is going to change as a result of this pandemic is we're really examining how many prenatal visits are necessary. And if we can make things more convenient in a non pandemic time period for people to have just fewer prenatal visits that are meaningful. And I think yeah. that'll be really great. Yeah, um, definitely. You're doing yeah. some telehealth too, right? Like, so for people who don't know, yeah. what is telehealth? Is it safe? Yeah. So telehealth is basically a big category of medicine that is remote and is used all over the United States already, particularly to provide access to specialists for rural areas. And so sometimes telehealth is a uh, medical provider talking to another medical provider. And sometimes telehealth is directly a patient, like basically like video chatting with doctor. And we've already been doing it. There have been lots of restrictions in terms of billing. There have lots of been lots of restrictions in terms of what is and isn't allowed versus telehealth. And we're seeing a huge mm-hmm. opening up of that right now, which is really exciting. Um, and I think was going to be good for access to healthcare in lots of ways. Um, and then what about screening as people come into clinic or if they have symptoms and they're pregnant in their first and second trimester? Yes. So I think um, a lot of this is going to vary depending on where you live in the country and depending on your exact hospital or clinic. I think local organizations um, have have tried to, I mean, I'm going to be honest here, with like with a huge lack of guidance from the federal government, which we could just spend a whole episode on, um, local organizations are really, you know, put in the role or in the place of trying to do what's safest for the people they care for and and set sort of their own guidelines. So this is, again, going to vary. But it has changed so much. Like we were saying, this could be outdated next week. But in early April, 
in the Bay Area, um, things have changed to the point where if someone is pregnant and having any kind of upper respiratory symptom, I as a physician am allowed to and am encouraged to order a test on that person. Now, granted, I'm in a place right now where um, using that new um, protocol this week, at least, we think that there will be enough tests to do that, but that changes so frequently. And that's based on the fact that this person, pregnant person, is immunocompromised. So that's her risk factor, their risk factor already. If you had asked me last week, she or they would not have um, necessarily had that same um, or I may not have had that same liberty to order the testing. That, like even a week ago, it was like, you have to have a known contact and a fever and this symptom and this symptom or, you know, whatever. So it's rapidly changing. But today, right now, just being pregnant and having um, cough, runny nose, you know, sore throat is enough. Also, we should say with that, um, you should call, your doctor's office should be calling you and asking you if you have those symptoms before you come in for a visit. But it's really important that you don't come to your doctor's office for a prenatal visit if you do have yes, those symptoms and you please. instead get tested because it is important for the, the safety of your healthcare providers, of other patients, that we make sure that anyone who has symptoms that could be be indicative of a COVID infection gets treated for that urgently. Yes. Please stay home if you have symptoms. Um, yeah. Do you okay, want to talk about also, the quarantining at all? Do you want to talk about like if quarantining should be different in different trimesters or oh, anything like that? Are you getting well, any of those yes, questions? Actually, so, so again, this is going to depend on which hospital you're at, but in the hospital that we currently practice, and I think a lot, um, you know, a lot of hospitals are trending this way. If a woman comes in, she's positive, and um, delivers a baby, her and the baby need to be separated. Again, this is not like you can't make someone do this, but this is the recommendation currently. So with that knowledge, I am telling people as they get further along in pregnancy, you know, if it were me, I would be super, super cautious in the weeks leading up to delivery, because if you happen to contract this, and then you go and deliver your baby. Like, now you are risking being separated from your baby. So, again, this depends where you live. Like, we're already living in an area that's, you know, uh, shelter in place. So, I think people are already doing this. But perhaps if you're not, maybe if you're in the Midwest or whatever, um, keep that in mind. Because if you are sort of not sheltering in place, if you're not self-quarantining in the weeks up to delivery and then you get sick, you may be risking that when you go to the hospital. And so, what about things that... Uh, one thing question I'm getting from people is what extra things should I bring for to the hospital, particularly if I'm thinking about birthing alone um, oh and or birthing with fewer people and yeah. should I wear a mask? That's what I think a lot of people are asking me. And I what are, actually, what have you been telling them? Well, the guidelines changed on this mask situation, even in the past few days. So the CDC just came out with this thing that makes me feel like we are in a developing country. That's basically our yeah. like surgeon general telling you how to make a cloth face covering. Yes. Um, but the recommendation yeah. is now that everyone in public places maintains social distancing of six feet and then also covers their face uh, with a mask if they have one or a cloth. And so I would say you should bring that to labor and delivery and hopefully your labor and delivery has them for you to wear. But if I think now you should wear that to labor and delivery, I think, um, you know, like the, the cloth masks and like the bandanas, cause that's what I've seen people wearing makes this very, very like apocalyptic, right? Like just the act of a bandana, I think makes this very like Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> Wait, can I just tell you this? I was in the grocery oh store the other day. 
they, I was in the grocery store the other day before we this guideline came out, and there were like some people were wearing masks, some people are not wearing masks, some people wearing N95, some people were not. And there was this guy in like a full ski mask, like no horror movie style. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that is with goggles, ski goggles. I'm like, that is doing zero things for you except freaking everyone out. I was just like, you are, you just seem like you're gonna rob the grocery store, and you're just scary right now. It's this like big guy. Uh, I was like, yeah, maybe okay, if you're like a big guy, you like tone it down with the cover, <laughs> or just like wear something around your face. You know, you don't need like a headpiece and goggles and like a like a oh god robber ski mask from like a cartoon. That's what it yeah was, was nutty. Oh um, but anyways, and but I think in terms of getting back to the question in terms of things to think about bringing if you're birthing alone. One thing I just want to say is you're not going to be alone. Your the your care providers will be there, your staff will be there, and I think one other silver lining for this is that you'll have fewer care providers because we're trying to minimize the number of people that interact with every patient, which means you may have more of an opportunity to sort of have a bond with those care providers than you would mm-hmm. otherwise. Um, maybe that's a stretch, but I think that's possible and that you're never in like a, like a birthing room by yourself. You should have a nurse and a care team that are supporting you. Yeah. And I think it's up to us to like really step up to that. The other thing that looks different too, is what your staff looks like. Like you're saying, you're going to be, um, everyone's wearing PPE or personal protective equipment. Um, but, uh, one thing that's um, come out is that if someone's a person under investigation or PUI, the actual, which is fascinating, the actual uh, pushing stage of labor is um, considered a really at-risk time for healthcare providers because, as you can imagine, like, people are, you know, just, it, it's very... Um, uninhibited. It's very uninhibited. Like, women are uh, pushing and screaming and crying, and there's a lot of bodily fluids, you know, and um, if you're not wearing you know, a mask or goggles, you can imagine that that's a really at risk time. Yeah. But it also sounds crazy as a pregnant person pushing to be wearing a mask, like just yes. oh, God. having any sort of like restraint while pushing sounds no. just so wild to me. So I'm also mindful of that, of trying to make that experience yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. less traumatic. But I think mm. this is a time when um, more than ever with labor and delivery, people have to think about controlling the things they can holding how they can best prepare themselves and how their team can best support them and sort of holding this uncertainty and then surrendering to this like wild time that we're in um, where where it's not uh, it's the whole world is just in a a wild pandemic okay so I want to talk about that because I think that some people hold that uncertainty and they're like yes we're all in it together let's do this the hospital staffs are with me we just look different other people have had, and I I'll, i mean, I've seen it in my own practice and I heard stories, but other people have had sort of a different approach, which is like maybe in the place that you live, not as many people are dying as New York. And so what is all this, you know, commotion about? Mm-hmm. And the, the hospital system is just doing this unnecessarily. And um, and also, why would you like, uh, you know, tell me to come in and not have a support person with me and make me susceptible to all this? I'm just going to have birth at home. I'm just going to have a home birth. Big question. Erica, what do you think to those people? Yeah, so I talked about this a lot with um, 
Erica Chidi, who's a doula. Um, and we, I was saying my formal recommendation for people is if you were not, a home birth is a really big decision and has a lot of other factors involved in it. And if you were not planning to have a home birth before, I don't think you should have a home birth now because still so many of the complications and dangerous things that occur in labor and delivery are still the same things. That has not changed with COVID. And we are doing as much as we can to make continue to make hospitals a, the safest place to have a delivery. And another dimension of this is we know the transfer rate for home births in the United States is about 50% um, mm-hmm. for, for first-time home births, uh, for first-time births. And what does that, that mean? That trans- well, that means that about half of people who intend to have a home birth actually have a birth in the hospital or transferred to the hospital at some point during or after delivery because, because of, complication of a complication. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or because of the need for anesthesia. There's all sorts of reasons. Some of them are scarier than others. But yeah. that transfer right now, like coming through an emergency department is so much more of a scary thing right yes. now. Coming, yes. Having to communicate whether or not your home birth attendant can come with you or your partner sounds like mm-hmm. a much more traumatic experience when you're already in yes. the sort of complication that's brought you to yeah. a different place than you intended to birth. And I think that is really important to think about. Yep. If you were, if you've had multiple babies before, if you've had multiple babies at home before and a home birth has always been your plan, I don't know that COVID would change anything about that. Um, but I think it is good to think about this. Even people who have had babies before uncomplicated births have a risk of trans- needing to transfer to the hospital for a variety of reasons. Every labor and delivery is different. And thinking mm-hmm. about the the increased uh, complications of that transfer right now, just because everything is more intense in hospitals yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a one, lot. But I think one of the I think one of the big things that people worry about and why they want to stay away from the hospitals is actually not so much the delivery, but what comes after, like what you yes. were saying about being separated. Yeah. Uh, so what what are you telling people about that sort of risk of separation from your baby? And, and what are the yeah. formal recommendations? So again, it's really hospital dependent at this time. But like I was saying, it's, it's possible that if you are uh, COVID-19 positive, your hospital is going to recommend that the baby be separated for you for up to two weeks. So patients can refuse to have um, your baby separated for you and, and instead opt out for um, and use like an N95 mask while holding the baby or that would keep the baby in a separate room at home. Like that's going to be really, really hard. But that's provided a lot of assumptions, like your hospital has enough masks or, um, you know, you feel that that's a safe option. There's people at home to help you. Um, yeah. So, so Yeah. I think that that's really hard, too, with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of OBGYN saying, like, the safest thing right now, given that we don't know about transmission, is to try to maintain droplet precautions, basically, between the mother and baby, if the mother is positive, which means, like, making, which we do with mothers with the flu, for example, that we Mm -hmm. say, like, we don't recommend, we recommend continuing breastfeeding if you have the active flu, but that you are using a mask that prevents you from having droplets and, like, do so much hand washing before that you're not touching anything else and that you're basically, like, not touching the baby at other times, which is super traumatic. Yeah, Um, so many things, no skin to skin, which affects breastfeeding, which affects bonding, so many downstream effects. I can't but even then, also, like the risk of your baby getting COVID is is real, and we know yeah, there are yeah. more and more reports that babies under a year do have 
uh, do get sicker when they are infected with COVID. And so I think that's a real concern for people. Yeah, that's um, another so, thing, just not being enough, not being enough information about pregnant people, but also about kids. And I think initially we had this false information or this false um, assumption. We made this false assumption that kids were immune from this, but there's it's a very different story for kids under five. Um, young kids yeah. are more at risk, and especially yeah. under one, especially under mm-hmm. one. Um, but I think that's the same thing. We just don't know the data yet, yeah. uh, but, but it's coming out that particularly babies under one seem to have uh, worse, worse uh, illnesses than babies who are not. Yeah. Um, and then other things we're trying to minimize, though, is getting people out of the hospital as soon as yep. possible. So yeah. we're trying to have people who have had a vaginal delivery, if it's medically safe, to go home about 24 hours later and a C-section about 48 hours later. Uh, obviously, not if there are other complications, it's still important that those are being treated. But and and remembering that those regular complications like high blood pressure, hemorrhage, infection are still things that are more common and more likely to affect you and your health than COVID nineteen at this point. But yeah. our, and and our job is to still think about those things and make sure you're safe for those things too. So another question um, I've but had what if, a lot of is like um, when you go home. So normally you would have potentially like your parents or. Um, other support yeah. people there to help you, night nurses, whatever, if you have the luxury. What do you tell those people? I think that that's really tricky because we are recommending that everyone um, self basically like self-quarantine at home. And so no one should be traveling to see you, um, particularly people that are, you have been in the hospital, so your potential yeah. for exposure yeah. is a little bit higher. And so having people that are older than 65 or have other conditions, you know, are in higher risk categories is dangerous to them. Um, and But I think that's really traumatic for thinking about, honestly, to me, having gone through delivery and postpartum twice, the postpartum period is the thing that sounds more traumatic for me to do alone. Like yeah, that you 100%. have all the other things that could be your support. Although the be your supports in the postpartum period, like everyone's doing, right? Like everyone's getting meals sent to their house and like, yeah everyone's like going on walks at odd hours around the block, <laughs> uh, which is like yeah, maybe a little bit bonding with the postpartum, but it just means that like you don't have any of those extra things for you. But it is a weird change. I've been telling people also that normally when you have visitors in that first month specifically, it's all about like protecting the baby. The baby's so, um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so vulnerable, like don't have people coming in without washing their hands, hand sanitizing, protect the baby. But at this point, like, like you said, you have been in the hospital and there are COVID positive people potentially in that hospital. This isn't about, I mean, it's always about protecting the baby, but it's also about protecting your parents or the people who potentially are older and coming Mm -hmm. to see you, like you're the vector, which is a weird thing to wrap people, your, your mind around for people. Yeah. You know, Um, And then just to skip a little bit to back, sort of skip around, but back to breastfeeding. So we've had some people who have said, like, should I breastfeed if I don't, if I don't think I have COVID? Is it still okay to start breastfeeding, continue breastfeeding? And then what if I actually do test positive for COVID or I'm waiting for test results? Should I stop breastfeeding while I'm waiting for test results? Should I continue breastfeeding? Yeah. So far, what we, what we think is, yes, we don't have any kind of data showing that COVID-19 can be passed through the breast milk. Um, but other coronaviruses that they've studied, like SARS, um, was not detected in breast milk in studies. Um, most transmission, again, is through respiratory uh, droplets or contact. Um, 
uh, with respiratory secretions, like very similar to the flu. And so this means that precautions are going to be really important for reducing any kind of respiratory secretions, like don't sneeze on your baby if you can. Wash your hands before breastfeeding. Maybe you wear a mask while breastfeeding. Um, wash your hands before pumping. Well, wash all the pumping equipment and breastfeeding cloths, pillows, etc., as often as you can. That's a lot, a lot of work. Um, yeah, and wearing a mask is already a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm just picturing wearing a mask, like finding your mask at 3 a.m. when you're like, oh my god, exhausted <laughs> and like yeah. trying to put it on in the right way. But I think like this, these are the crazy things we do to try to protect our babies. And I I would say you don't need to wear a face mask breastfeeding if you have no symptoms and have not and are not COVID positive, have no known exposure. You don't need to be wearing a mask while you're breastfeeding. Um, We know that breast milk has lots of antibodies. We know it's great for lots of other ways, uh, lots of other reasons, and probably is protective of many other illness and is protective of other illnesses. So mostly just washing your hands, washing your hands, washing your hands. There are so many other questions that I think you and I need to go into, but perhaps in a different episode about what's happening with uh, abortion and contraception, what's Mm -hmm. happening um, with other gynecologic surgeries and things like that. But I think maybe Mm -hmm. let's save those. Yeah, I think for sure abortion and COVID is going to be a whole nother episode because there's a lot just, oh my God, I can write so much like policy-wise going on specifically with like some Southern states, Texas, Oklahoma, we won't get into it right now, um, whose legislators just all of a sudden think that this is an excuse to just ban abortion outright. We will save that because it is not. We will save that because, oh, well, because the ACLU is doing and hopefully there'll be some good development oh, and a positive I know, I know. But But there are silver linings, I think, even with the conversation about abortion and COVID, too. We've seen a lot of medical groups come out saying abortion is essential health care in a way that we've been trying to get big medical groups to stay for a long time. So that's exciting. Uh, But again, let's save it, don't you think? Yes, for sure. I really like leaned in for a few days to this whole like, this is just mother nature having this like, big pause in the earth right now. I'm just oh, like, oh. hold, oh, sure. everyone, check yourselves. Let's see if this is really the world we want to live in and what could yeah. be, what could we just examine and improve? And I think yeah. that's like a good space for headspace for me to be in. Like what, how can we examine and get better from this? Sort of like, I feel like we are, I need to quote Robin, Robin NYC of like, oh, you do it, you do it. Where she's, where she's just like, how can we use this time to just be, better humans and be, yep. you know, yep. um, so send us, send that, us your ways that this is making you a better human. Uh, okay. And yeah, stay safe, stay sane. Okay. Next stay time. safe, stay sane. Okay. Bye. Bye Dan. If you've liked this episode of the V word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VWordPod. This podcast was written and produced by the VWord team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening.